0: I used to have a really good thing going. For years, morning hours would result in new pages, and over short periods of time, new plays. I could do this over and over again. And since I'm at no loss for things I want to write, this was really working for me. I think I've talked about this once or twice in this space before. But so many things has changed over the past two years. It isn't all because of the pandemic, although that was not a help at all. It's been a perfect storm of multiple job changes, huge life events occurring, moving, generally being unable to write at home during a pandemic or not. And most of all, working on the most challenging play I have ever written. So I had this process going for years. I would have an idea for a play, I'd spend months thinking about it, conduct the amount of research it called for, and then hit the ground running with the writing. I repeated that process over and over. Then I hit all these walls. I just couldn't get this play where I needed to be. Don't get me wrong, I completed a draft. There was a beginning, middle, and end. But it just wasn't right. To make matters worse, I had some people read this three-act behemoth with multiple people responding, telling me Act 2 was great. Act 2 should be a play all on its own. Act 2 was all they could talk about. I mean, they're not wrong. Act 2 should be a play, probably. But the play I'm creating needs Act 2 as act two. I know it doesn't seem like it works, but I also know that it can. I can't explain myself or justify this in any way. I just know that these three acts can work in sequence and when I get it done, whatever done really means, who knows, I will be proud of this work. That was me a little over a year ago. I put the play aside for a while, thought on it, made some cosmetic changes here and there thinking that really meant I was rewriting. Months passed. I had other projects I wanted to move on to, collaborators waiting on me for things. I just couldn't do it. I was so stuck in my head about this play. So I decided to do a couple simple things I had never done before, but both things I did have done wonders for my thinking and my output. First, I decided to connect with a dramaturg I long admired to see if they'd be willing to help me work through this piece. I set aside a little bit of money and told them what I could afford to pay, and we agreed to work. And I have to tell you, involving another person with an outside perspective and zero connection to the play was a huge help for me to open up my brain and crack this play open. I took a ton of notes, as did this dramaturg, and I must have read over them a thousand times over the next six months or so I was sure I knew what I had to do but again I struggled with finding the quality focused time to make it all come together so I did the second simple thing that changed the game for me I created my own little mini writer's retreat I drove a few hours away from home and spent several days in an apartment with groceries coffee and water I spent for maybe the first time in my writing life Full days writing. Because of life and work and the opportunities provided me or not, I have never been able to dedicate full consecutive days completely focused on the writing. And it was incredible. I got an unbelievable amount of writing done. And best of all, I finished what I wanted to finish. Is this play done? <laughs> But for the first time since I started thinking about it five years ago, I feel good about what I created. And I think I'm actually proud of it. The moral to the story, don't let the obstacles define your writing. Just like the characters we create, we need to actively pursue our own goals and battle our way through. Use whatever you have access to. Do whatever your budget and privilege allows. Be an obstacle to your obstacles and get the work done. Welcome to the final episode of the Subtext Podcast for the year 2021. My name is Brian James Polak. What a year, right? I think for a second attempt at getting 2020 right, we could have done better. I'm sure next year can't be worse than this is something I said out loud 12 months ago. What I'll say now is I hope in 12 months we are still here doing this, creating, talking, sharing and doing our best to be good stewards of the theater. 2021 has been incredible for the subtext. We started the year with an awesome conversation with one of my favorite playwrights. I spoke to Pulitzer winners, Tony winners, and Oscar winner, flat out legends. And I got to spend time face-to-face with some of my favorite people and share their stories. I encourage you to go back and listen to the episodes we created this year if you haven't already. And this year isn't even done yet. Because on this episode, I talk to another amazing writer, Haruna Lee. Haruna is an award-winning Taiwanese-Japanese-American theater maker, screenwriter, educator, and community steward who describes their work as rooted in a liberation-based healing practice. Between 2010 and 2020, Lee created six original works with their own ensemble. Their works include Suicide Forest, an Obie Award-winning New York Times critics' pick directed by Aya Agawa, it received a world premiere at the Bushwick Star in 2019 and an off-Broadway remount in 2020 with my Yee Theatre Company. Haruna and I talk a good deal about this amazing piece of theatre during our, during our conversation. And you know what? I really think you're going to love this one. I spoke to Haruna over Zoom in December 2021. What were you like as a kid?
1: I um I was just talking with some of my students about this like our middle school years. Um I was um part of like the alternative group, the punk and alternative group. Um and I grew up on this small island called Mercer Island on Lake Washington. It's like a 15 minute drive from Seattle, but once you're on the island it's very suburban and it's its own little world um it's one of those places where everybody knows everybody's parents and siblings and grandparents and you run into everybody at the local qfc food market and that's like the place to hang out <laughs> um but yeah in that in that atmosphere i was the alternative kid wanting to get out of get out and off the island all the time. And my friends we'd drive out and go to, you know, the 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 music venues in Seattle that would let 16-year-olds in, like the 16 plus, and then we'd just kind of push our way to the front and be moshing against the (laughs) stage.
0: Well, was it connected. was it like a literal island where you needed to hop on a ferry to to get off? Was there a bridge?
1: There was a bridge. There was a. F- it was called the floating bridge. It's still called the floating bridge that connects Seattle with Mercer Island. Or it, the freeway kind of runs across Mercer Island.
0: Did Did you have that sense of we're on an island growing up? Did you feel like that that sort of like isolation, being surrounded by water?
1: yeah, there was this feeling of on the island. And I mean, the school's mascot was the Mercer Island Islanders. So <laughs> there's a bit of like <laughs> pride there, school pride. Um, but a funny thing about me is I think I've spent most of my life on islands, like Japan, growing up in Japan before Mercer Island. Um, one of my favorite places in the world is Okinawa, which is a uh, kind of the southern tip of Japan, an island that connects, uh, really is kind of a connector to Taiwan and Japan. I'm Taiwanese and Japanese, so I feel oddly at home on this island that has its own culture and it has the folks there speak like this really interesting kind of Japanese that I can't I can't understand when I'm there, and they have their own food that is very much like, kind of bringing in both Japanese and Taiwanese Chinese culture.
0: Mm-hmm. How old were you when you moved from Japan?
1: I was eight.
0: So an eight-year, so you were, so an eight-year-old is totally, you know, fluent in language. I right uh did you more or you, less yeah I mean I just imagine I remember myself as an eight-year-old I you know I was you know fluent I'm putting air quotes up in, in English <laughs> uh did we so you moved to the U.S. and then uh, you're an eight-year-old in on another island on Mercer Island yeah in, in a lake uh yep. were you were you like uh as an eight-year-old were you able to sort of like intellectualize what this, what this was like, the, this, how the environment was so, was different and you were in a different country and the people were different?
1: Yeah, i maybe I should contextualize the move a little bit too. Um, so, uh, we were in Tokyo, I'm eight years old. My father had just passed from, um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and my mom and my sister and I were in Tokyo, we had his uh, funeral service. And before that, when my dad was alive, um, we were actually for his work, we were back and forth between the states and Japan a lot. and. I also went to an international an all girls international Catholic school in Tokyo. So I was speaking English with these nuns at school Mm -hmm. all the time. And then at home it was Japanese because my mom, uh, predominantly speaks Japanese. And my dad was like a total polyglot spoke so many languages. And then my sister and I would kind of like mix English and Japanese in all the ways we could. Um, but, uh, my dad, passed, and um, we were in Dearborn, Michigan when he passed. He worked for Ford Motors, and so was at the hospital there. Uh, Then we come back to Tokyo, and we hold this big funeral service, and then I think my mom had a conversation with family and friends, and they all uh, were asking her to change her name, uh, last name, back to her Japanese name, so that we wouldn't be discriminated against in Japan. Um, my last name being Lee and her maiden name uh, was, is Nowata. Uh And my mom being my mom, you know, was just livid. And she picked Seattle of all places where she had one contact. I think it was like a college, some college friend who lives out like in Eastern Washington. And she was like, we are going to Seattle. Your father talked about, you know, the University of Washington's campus as being beautiful. And this is where we're gonna go. And so we picked up all our stuff and left. And it was the three of us um, in Seattle for this really strange kind of liminal, experience of like we weren't in school I don't know if my mom really knew what she was doing um and we were just down the block from Pike Place Market um in downtown Seattle and at that time you know 20 plus years ago it it was just a different kind of Seattle there's a lot of um unsheltered folks and um I think like neurodivergent folks and it was kind of a weird world to step into and my mom would take us to pike place market every morning and my sister and i my sister's six and i'm eight at the time and we'd stroll down the market and look at like the the makeshift kind of uh off-brand beanie babies that the folks would make (laughs) It was all amphibians, like shiny snakes and frogs and that kind of stuff. And then um, there were also honey, like there were stands selling honey and so we would get honey sticks. And then, uh, and then finally we came to the stand that was selling ocarinas, which is like a little clay instrument. And my mom bought us two ocarinas and that's what we would play with. Back in the apartment or whatever it was that we were staying in the hotel or apartment and we would just play these little ocarinas <laughs> all day.
0: I was thinking about how when we go someplace new, we're so, I say we, I'm gonna talk in terms of me. When I go someplace new, I'm so aware of the, the differences and the weirdness of the things around me and always in sort of relation to wherever it was I came from. Like I moved to Los Angeles from the East coast and I'm like seeing LA and being like, this place is so weird and different. And, and I'm wondering if we, if, uh, if I have had blinders to the places I've come from in a way where I'm not aware of uh, the differences that if somebody came came to it for the first time would be like, like I grew up in New Hampshire, which is uh, there's nothing different or weird or interesting at all, I would say. And then like you or anybody who has never been there could show up in New Hampshire and be like, this place is bananas. And then see all this stuff that I can't see. And I've started, so that's what I was thinking of when you were, talking about arriving in Seattle and seeing this market and all this stuff for the first time.
1: Yeah, it was a totally different world, stepping into a totally different world. And it was kind of like the first marker of us as a family being a trio rather than Mm. the four. Um, And in my memory, it really marks that time to uh also like marking this time of like living with a parent who is just grieving the entire time um we were you aware, like
0: we you aware of her her grieving
1: not at as the a time? kid yeah. no um and it's only kind of in retrospect that i uh yeah, like you asked that question of, were you able to intellectualize what this was? And I wasn't, I just, it was like, well, we've stepped through the, the wardrobe and now we're here in this new world. Um, And now our reality is it's three of us. And, but in retrospect, I see the little moments where my mother was just fully in her grief and, what a strange thing to do too, to isolate herself. I mean, of course she had such incredible intentions. She wanted us to grow up in a place where she thought we could really be ourselves and keep our last name and, you know, hold on to the parts of us that uh, are our dad too. Um, But the cost of that was her being alone all the time and uh it really created this wild like my uh sibling and I Erica and I are not very close um as siblings and part of that is uh because I think our we took a different take on how to be with our mom Mm -hmm. and during that time and so as as the older kid, I was like, oh wow, I need to, I can't leave this person's side. I am gonna stay by her side and make sure, you know, I'm just gonna translate everything that I can. I'm gonna pick up the phone calls, I'm gonna go to the grocery store with her, um, just for fear that like I didn't want her to feel embarrassed or you know, scared or nervous, or I was trying to kind of pick up the slack and really wanted to step into this parent role. And then my sister, on the other hand, was, you know, had a little less grasp of Japanese than I did. And so already there's that um distance between my mom and her, Uh because my mom really still, <laughs> after 20 odd years in this country, she's still, you know, Speaks mostly Japanese, and it's kind of incredible how she's gotten through life and is still living in Seattle. Um, but uh, yeah, my sister kind of really wanted that American family and the American life and lifestyle, and was really distancing herself from, I think, me and my mom, and especially me because I was trying to be a parent to her and didn't know what I was doing, but was like, have you finished your homework? This is your curfew. (laughs) Not giving myself a curfew, but forcing a curfew on her or, you know, saying things like, I think Dawson's Creek is too, that is too risky for you. (laughs) When Really, it's that I was feeling risky and, you know, getting turned on by the show and was like, I don't want to be feeling those feelings with my sister next to me. And so- but like using the parent kind of lens as a way to like (laughs) get the things I needed or wanted. And so it really, you know, messed with, messed with our dynamic as siblings. I have
0: an I have an older sister and our, our dynamic is reversed. Uh, She's two years older than me. And when my mother divorced, when we were eight, we, didn't have a relationship with our father. So we were, you know, being raised by a single mom for a few years and, uh, we were alone a lot. We were alone at home. So she, I was eight, basically from like six, seven onward. I, we were home alone a lot. So she was, mm-hmm. she was, she was eight. I was six. Um, and there were, our dynamic ended up being, I, I felt the, uh, like you were talking about feeling the sense of being the older one and the older has like this natural responsibility, right. To caretake. And I, uh, my older sister was sort of uh, afraid, like just not na- like her, her first instinct was fear when there would be like a bump in the night or like something outside the house. You, you would like, it would be like fear. So I latched on to being the caretaker, brave one, that like even at from a young age, and uh, so that was our dynamic for a while. But like I just I kept thinking about all these parallels that you were talking about with your sister because she, my sister, and I grew up not particularly close either, and our dynamic mm-hmm. between each other and each of our dynamics with our mother were just very different. So, like that triangle was just so so very different. Um, and my older sister and I didn't become close until she basically went away to college. And I, and then I was in, I was now in high school, she's gone. Now I appreciate her for the first time. I'm wondering if it was similar with the two of you.
1: Exactly the same. It wasn't until I finally left the (laughs) triangle and then there was this distance and we could finally kind of process, I think. For the first time, what we had done to each other for survival—like the things that happened in that household for survival—and um, then the then the process of forgiving each other—and I feel like we're still in that. It's a very soft, a tender place. We're still forgiving yeah. each other for past um, past things, and it's just so. I was back home for Thanksgiving, and it's—I always think, you know, oh, it's going to be great gonna be great this time we're all gonna be civil and adults and we come back together in that triangle and then
0: just mm-hmm. all the
1: old the old baby yeah. and the triggers and yeah well
0: back when you know you were eight years old and you came to the U.S. so this in your early childhood were were the arts part of your life like did you have artists or writers or in your in your family
1: so my mother is uh is an artist um and she was in interior design uh, before she met my father and my father was very very traditional in his thinking of relationship dynamics and marriage and so she uh, let that go and became a housewife, and a caretaker to us. Um, But after my dad passed, and once we found ourselves settled on Mercer Island, which the way she found Mercer Island too is truly wild, she drove us out, She, she learned about Mercer Island, drove us out onto this island, and the one and only place we went to on this island is the McDonald's and we go in we step in and you just see her she's like looking around and she's like this is amazing it's so clean there's a play space (laughs) like everybody is so kind uh and that's how she chose that island for us to live on is through the the quality of the McDonald's on there (laughs) of course of course Of course, immigrant mom, like how else are you going to pick? But what else do you Um, need, really? (laughs) Right, right. The McDonald's says it all. Um, And so, yeah, once we were settled on there, um, on the island, my mom started writing a book. And she would just kind of disappear for stretches of time in her room on a strange looking... Japanese laptop that I've never to this day I couldn't tell you what it was maybe it was like a Toshiba something and she's just typing away all day um so that was happening in the background and then at school um in oh gosh I guess it was in the fifth grade uh the school decided to put on this musical called Lewis and Clark's Adventure and so it was about the discovery of the Northwest territory and how Sacajawea brought these men and, you know, helped them, helped them discover the Northwest passage and that territory. And, uh, and I decided to audition for it. Um, I was really interested and this is so, oh my God, horrible and appropriative and terrible, but, you know, I looked at Sacajawea and I was like, I'm in this very predominantly white kind of school and community. And I was like, I, I look like zack I think I am a shoe in for this character. And I go in and I audition and then some time passes and the casting comes out and I got cast as Lewis as one <laughs> of the, <laughs> the uh, explorer himself. And um, that, was my first kind of entry point into performance and realizing that I, even I, could step into this most coveted cis white man role and speak with such authority and with and hold a cardboard gun on stage while all the other characters are pretending to be bears and roaming around, or there was just this really wild kind of drag moment for me um, that felt really powerful. And, you know, in a time when I felt so, again, like stepping into a world where I just didn't know the rules, I didn't really know the culture. And I felt like my only way to fit in was to just keep erasing the parts of myself that didn't make sense to everybody else like you know wild moments in classrooms where they're talking about US citizenship and passports and I raise my hand and I'm like I'm a dual citizen I have two passports and the teacher is just so confused and all she could do is you know say no that's not possible what are you talking about um, things like that where I'm like oh maybe uh, the way I am doesn't make sense here and so this kind of erasing 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 and here stepping into this role was like i could i was someone else but i could kind of be myself in it
0: do you remember performing sense. do you remember performing and how that felt
1: yeah yeah i do i do remember the opening scene was sitting on this desk i mean maybe it's like that it's the predecessor to Hamilton or something, but here's <laughs> here's a desk and here's this <laughs> like a quill and the ink and a piece of paper and I'm in my mom's um black boots that are knee high and I have a vest on and my hair is tied back and you know I get to sit in this desk and I'm the first thing that opens the musical and I'm tapping my fingers and I'm like oh <laughs> What do I need to do? I need to go. We need to go explore this territory. <laughs> and I get to sing this big opening song. Um and it felt great. It felt really great.
0: Who got cast as Sacagawea?
1: Um Samantha Brotman, who was a sweet Jewish girl with a very great soprano voice. <laughs> <laughs> and they threw her into a black wig with braids.
0: Did you have any awareness of this sort of um, appropriation at that age?
1: No, not really. Um, I just, but in my mind, you know, oh right, Sacagawea is the female lead and a female lead I mean, somewhere in my mind, I'm computing. Oh, the female lead must be played by someone who looks like Samantha Brotman, aka a white woman with, you know, doe-like eyes, and has this beautiful soprano mm. voice. Meanwhile, I'm this strange, like Asian child with kind of a alto <laughs> alto voice, and I. My figure was just so stick, you know, this stick figure is how mm-hmm. I picture myself. And she was much more kind of a curvy fifth grader. And mm. yeah, so only to that degree where it's like, I'm not, I don't think I'm allowed to play that role or
0: mm-hmm. although
1: somehow I'm allowed to play this other one.
0: Hmm. But uh, but i'm I'm assuming the experience of being in the in a play for the first time um there was something about it since you, here we are you know years later and you're still involved in in this art form uh, so did did you feel like hooked into theater after after this first performance?
1: Yeah, that was it that was the beginning <laughs> for me. For sure, I was so hooked. It was like a drug. I felt so, I mean, now, this isn't how I was understanding it as a child, but now I look back and I'm like, wow, I was just getting off on this feeling of being liberated in my own body, this body that everywhere I go, every time I step out into the world is seen as just whatever people wanna see it as. Oh, you're the Asian nerd. You must be very smart. Do you play violin? Uh, Like, how how are your math skills? You're so shy. You're so quiet. You're so good. Um, All these things that have to do with a kind of submission and servitude that is like a part of whatever imperial American imperial gaze placed on the Asian femme body. All of that, I could escape it for, a moment for an hour, for two hours, I could step into something else and be, be just that. And that feeling of liberation was wild and so addictive.
0: Did it become a thing you wanted to, uh, you know, we, we ask the question of young people all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, was that the your answer to that question? I want to be an actor. I want to be an actress.
1: Yeah, it was. And I'm not sure if I would have landed there if my dad was still alive um, and if my mom wasn't so just succumbed into her book writing. like there was a kind of um, like lawlessness at home too. I think that allowed me to just say like, no, I'm the adult. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose what I want to do and that the more, kind of typical questioning that might come from parents that just didn't exist in my in my life at that time and so I picked it and I was so like it was like I had blinders on that's all I wanted to do
0: so so what did you do like like take me through you know your growing up years as it relates to to this. Like, did you just continue to do school play after school play after school play?
1: I joined a performing children's choir um, on this island. It was separate to the school, uh, a, se- a separate program from the school, Um, and was this privately run choir for only for girls. Um, or there was the children's choir, which was co-ed. And then by the time you get to seventh grade, it was called Island Sound. And it was like very much a variety show-esque. You learn jazz and you learn tap and you learn Irish step dance and you learn ballet and, and you sing and you sing and you sing. And it's, I think they were taking Broadway songs and maybe... Good. rearranging and changing the words just enough so they can kind of fly under the radar of copyright issues. Um, but the most kind of incredibly random selection of shows would be slammed together. Like we did one that was Cats and and uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever, <laughs> And so half the choir was in unitards in full cat regalia. And the other half was in black jazz pants with neon tops and sports bras doing.
0: <laughs> Which one were you?
1: Which one do you think I was?
0: I don't know. You, you Moments ago, you had a cat on your lap. So now I'm wondering if it was uh, a cat, if you were a cat. Nailed it. You got it. <laughs>
1: I was Mr. Mistopheles <laughs> in, in that version of Cats that was lived adjacent to, <laughs> to oh.
0: that other piece.
1: I love um, it. Yeah, so I had that. And then um, in high school, I was part of the drama club. Um, which was run by this incredible woman named Karen Campbell, who, um, you know, I went to a really traditional school. it was like the football players and the cheerleaders and, and everything was kind of this social hierarchy. And uh, in a place like that, Campbell was putting on Ionesco's rhinoceros or asking us to devise our own traveling children's show that then we would take to the elementary school um, or to different elementary schools across, you know, Seattle. Um, or she wanted to do a dinner theater. So we would do a dinner theater on the stage and have us serving food while also performing, you know, all these different characters and she was just quite out of the box. I think for a high school teacher, she would teach us Lecoq. She would try to teach us, you know, she would uh, do all this mask work too. And and so I really fell in love with her and the program that she had. And I think it was really with her that, and she was so encouraging um, that I realized that I wanted to go to New York and, really pursue it.
0: Were you writing in high school?
1: Not really, not plays, not um, a little bit of creative writing, for sure. Writing was always important. I mean, I've loads of journals, (laughs) um, loads and loads of journals and diaries and all of that. So I feel like I was always expressing myself through writing. Um, But it wasn't until I got to New York and to NYU um, at the experimental theater wing that I really started thinking about play writing and play making.
0: When you first started uh, thinking about it or experimenting with it, were there there plays? Were there writers? Were you, was like, do you have like teachers feeding you material? Like read this, study this.
1: No, you know, um, at, the experimental theater wing, uh, they're really Grotowski based in their training. And um, and so it's like the, it's such a body based work and training and like poor theater as like mm-hmm. the aesthetic um, and like a do it yourself, uh, you can do it all, self-produce this was really the motto. Um, and so you're not just an actor, you are a maker, so why not make, um, so there's very little kind of, you should read this or try it this way or try it that way, um, but more just a really sacred space where they were like, why don't you try?
0: Uh, I actually got to see a solo performance in Grotowski's studio in Roslaw, Poland, once and it it feels like a sacred space it's Mm -hmm. just brick just brick it's a brick box and it's not particularly large but uh i know you walk in there and you just feel like this is amazing like like there's a there's just like an aura there's something there's something to it and maybe if you didn't come in with the uh context I don't know what I don't know what a person would feel like in that situation, but I sort like I walked in and I was just like, ooh, this is amazing.
1: Yeah, that um kind of home, a sense of home is so important when we're making. I was um talking with uh Sybil Kempson, who's a playwright. Um we had on we had her on a panel for uh the Brooklyn College and the Fate playwrights, who I'm currently teaching, and Sybil was talking about the monkness of her artistry, and then also talking about how, you know, as an artist, as a monk, we're not just tasked with being the monk, being in this very spiritual, spirit practice, but that we're also tasked with building the monastery itself, too, and that there's just no support, and how, mm-hmm much work that is to not just be ourselves but then to have to create the structure in which we live and in which our work lives to that constant kind of like translating and contextualizing who we are as artists and how we share ourselves out to the world but this image of like the sacred brick wall, like there was such a sacredness to these studio spaces at the experimental theater wing too. And maybe because it's just like covered and people sweat mm. <laughs> just covered in, I don't know, just body bodily fluid and the bare feet. And the, there's just something so embodied about these spaces. And, um, I think it was at ETW at experimental theater wing where I finally. So if in my early years, it was like, I'm gonna step into a role and that's how I feel a sense of liberation or a sense of um, uh, letting myself go. The, The experimental theater wing space, the sacred Grotowski space felt like, oh, I can just be myself. How can I be more myself? And that in and of itself, that is a performance and that is enough. And so I felt like I was really kind of deconstructing, unlearning all of those things uh, that were programmed in me to erase myself in order to be something else, but that it was like building myself back up and being myself, being more myself in order to access, uh, access that sense of freedom.
0: How, I deserve it too. How did that, so how did that manifest? Like, what did that look like when you started to have this realization?
1: It looked like shaving my hair. It looked like coming out as queer. It looked like, um, yeah, like being in touch with my sexuality and my sex. Like the, I think of like Audre Lorde's um, uses of the erotic, like how important erotic nature is to making and all of that that was kind of like I don't know it was like really not something that I was allowed to access as a child I feel was just flooding flooding into my body and then it was like oh I can write stories about myself I can uh like the first piece I wrote was called uh matsuri slash festival um was the title of the piece and it was uh myself playing this elder Japanese woman um and and yeah oh what what was it really about (laughs) I don't know if I can tell you anymore but I remember we had made we had like strung all of these um uh coffee filters that we had cut out to be, um, in the shape of, uh, cherry blossoms, and we strung them onto wire, and we just filled the entire theater (laughs) with, um, these, like, uh, coffee filters that were dyed pink and turned into cherry blossoms, and the whole space was kind of filled with this paper, and that, um, yeah, wow, I'm- just, I'm realizing how much paper, how important paper has been in my (laughs) art making process right now, but yeah, um, it was very much about my Japanese-ness, my lens of Japanese-ness, um, death and sex being so, uh, so much a part of my life, and I think it was using, like, the four seasons, like, the the play went through autumn, winter, spring and summer to talk about, to wax poetic on, on those themes as this old lady.
0: I love that you, I love this shift from being like, I'm going to enter these characters and act in whatever these characters that, that people have created and then forget yourself. And then the shift into creating characters for yourself that are of yourself in some way.
1: Yeah, I think my practice has really become that where I'm just, seems like I'm just trying to get closer and closer to a sense of myself that exists in all its pluralities and multiplicities and and to share that out in its most messy and fragmented way feels mm-hmm. like, like how can I just get closer to that? Like I um, I feel like now my work is kind of akin to like Claudia Rankine and uh, in her book, Citizen where it's like just this auto theoretical kind of like deep dive where she's using her stories to get, closer to a feeling that she has as a black woman, or I think of like Adrian Kennedy's plays and Funny House of a Negro too, which was a huge inspiration for my play Suicide Forest, where, you know, can we take that risk to dive into our psychic space, use the psychic space as the landscape for a play. And then from there allow the most horrific characters to emerge, um, that speak to, I mean, for me in Suicide Forest, it's characters who speak to, a uh, Japanese or Asian American, uh, sensibility. Um, yeah.
0: When I, when I was in grad school, a, when a teacher I had, uh, shared with us, this short documentary about the uh, suicide forest in Japan. Uh, And it was like 20 minutes long and it it followed this. Maybe you saw it, maybe you've seen it. Um, It has like millions of views, uh, but it it followed this man who was essentially touring the camera through the forest and talking about the work that he does there and showing, you know, stuff left behind and, and, and whatnot. He's the
1: care He's a forest, the care, yeah,
0: the yeah. caretaker, yeah. But
1: I think he was like a forest ranger, but then his job changed to being kind of like the caretaker of the people who enter that forest to commit suicide and he's like the prevention suicide prevention person (laughs) of the forest. But originally I think he was a forest ranger. I watched this. It was so
0: incredible. It was like one of the most, like one of the most moving things I'd ever seen, like the spirit of this person, because I think at the filming of this documentary, he was not officially the caretaker he was like a forest ranger at the time, but I think he evolved into this role. It seemed like anyway, the way he talked about to the camera of his job and what he was doing, it seemed like he was evolving into this position, but his spirit was so like, he was so warm and he was so gentle and it was such a, like, it was so moving. I had never heard of this place before. and there is a scene where I, you know, anybody who's listening, um, Google it. YouTube, it's on YouTube. You can find it, and you will be. I'm guarantee you will be moved by it. But he he encounters somebody in a tent, um, and he talks to them for a moment, and uh, and it's so you see you, this in action, this sort of like caretaker spirit in action. And anyway, this stayed with me for years. It was never. You know, I'm a playwright and, you know, we always are collecting ideas and whatnot. And this was never something that I was thinking of, of writing, but it was a thing that always just like stayed with me because it moved me so much. So when uh, I read about, I just saw the title Suicide Forest and uh, I was like, oh, my God, somebody wrote about this. And, and but I had never seen it so I've never seen your, I've never seen your show. I've only, I've only read about it. So I don't know the connection to the act, the if it's, if it is like the suicide forest or if it's the idea of some, I'm just curious to, to hear you talk about this because uh, it just is eliciting all these emotions in me remembering watching this, this movie.
1: Yeah, the compassion of that ranger is so moving. And I had watched this documentary as well as part of it was part of my path towards finding this forest as the psychic landscape for this play. And what drew me to the forest is that it is the place where Japanese people go to erase themselves. And that act, that Act of self-erasure and just I mean connecting it, connecting that all the way back to what we've been talking about of this as a child, um, the repetition of erasing oneself in order to be American in this country, and that it just the forest spoke to me so much. I was like, oh, this is me, this is my this forest exists inside me. I go to this forest all the time. And so once, once I had that in place, the, uh, that the play would eventually end up in this forest, and of course it's not the literal forest, but maybe more a version of suicide forest that exists inside me, then I also knew that, I don't know if you've seen this video, but there is, there was an American kid who went into this forest with? I forget his name, but he went in with his mm-hmm. iPhone or whatever it was and just recorded uh, the forest and then recorded uh, a body in in this forest. And so, and there's so many horror movies about Suicide Forest made from an American gaze. And so I knew in my play the thing that happens in this forest is connectivity is the softest and most tenderest parts of this play and so the front half of suicide forest is really following this salaryman um so pathetic this a salaryman who is kind of the butt of everyone's joke in this corporate world that he slogs through and has dedicated his entire life to. And then we have this um, 16-year-old girl, Azusa, who is, uh, who is like that quintessential Japanese school girl, but her entire sex and sexuality is only alive through this male gaze and the two of them are really at the brink of suicide, I think, and they meet each other and uh, and uh, they kind of entertain, you know, sleeping with each other or do they kill themselves or there's just this conversation of sex or death um, and uh, the salaryman, uh, oversteps and tries to control her, tries to take advantage of her, and we get this epic monologue from Azusa that, uh, that is her claiming herself, and then that monologue essentially breaks the space apart. The, literally, the set came apart, um, and we transition into the forest, and Azusa falls into this forest where all of the horrific characters we had seen in uh, the first part of the play are now playing these gentle goats who are it kind of in the midst of a ritual and the space. And uh, my collaborator, Aya Gawa, who's amazing, incredible, incredible playwright, director, uh, theater maker, uh, a translator and she uh, and our set designer, Jian Zheng, um, decided to fill stockings with rice. And so we had these big globular things and they, when the space broke open these large globular rice bags in stocking would drop into the space. We probably had 20, 30 of them And then we have these goats kind of meandering through the space and they crack open one of the stockings and all this rice pours out. And to me, it felt like, you know, the caretaker of the Mm. space, the rangers, the goats were the caretakers of these spirits, maybe the hanging rice bag spirits and that they had some kind of process of letting the rice out. And then they did a little dance. Uh, with these rice shakers and wooden box and wooden boxes, um, and then my mother, my mother who penned this book, my mother, my grieving mother who's now um, moved through her grief and has, I think, become something else. Uh, my mother performed in this show with me and um, was dancing. Buto, which is something she picked up 10 years ago. Um, and so she emerges into this forest uh, in this blood red kimono. And she, you know, her entire body's painted white and she is kind of this demon uh, spirit of this forest. And Azusa, the 16 year old schoolgirl who's played by me, comes out, pops out into this space. And here in the suicide forest is where finally, mother and child can have an intimate conversation and the play breaks open and we drop our characters and we have a frank conversation as as family
0: that's beautiful what you. you know there when you're when you're in the space of performance and you're doing this on stage there's this sort of natural artifice that is, is created because there's an audience sitting there and they bought tickets to watch a thing. Did that, did that help you have this moment with your mom or did it, did it get in the way?
1: It absolutely helped. Um, I mean, going back to that triangle and how isolated we were in this dynamic and that we didn't have ways of, talking with each other, to each other, let alone speak the language. I mean, there was the language barrier, there was the culture barrier, there was so much going on. And then in this show and having Aya, and Aya and I worked really hard to put together this intergenerational Japanese heritage cast and team. And so everyone kind of stood witness as, so that we could have this conversation and maybe not break completely break down and or completely, you know, tear each other apart. Um, that they were holding us accountable in this moment as mother and child. Um, and the play ends with me asking her all of these questions, like, why did we move to Seattle from Japan? Did you ever love Dad? You know, how did you feel when he died? All of these questions that have still remained unanswered in my life. Um, The questions trigger her back into a demonic figure. And I return to the Azusa character and I sing a song to her. Uh, The lyrics are, I don't need you anymore, little ghost mama, little ghost mama, little ghost mama. And then we part ways.
0: Hmm. has she given you the answers in real life
1: not yet not yet
0: you still want them
1: i remain hopeful Yeah. yeah yeah
0: did your mom finish her book
1: she did it was published um and i'm so proud of her she's yeah her artistic life has just completely blossomed. And I think it was part of her way of moving through the grief too. And she's now writes tanka poetry and is looking to publish her first, guess it's like a chat book or um, her book of tanka. And then she's picked up Butoh dancing and she dances in Seattle all the time now.
0: You were talking earlier about how You're, and I might be putting the wrong words into your mouth, restating what you said, but you were talking about your work is getting, um, the journey of your work is getting closer and closer to, to the essence of who you are.
1: Right now at this moment, I feel there's a real proximity to me. I feel in this even i guess thinking about this year this last half of 2021 i feel such proximity to myself i'm finding myself and i know only to know that i'm just going to move right through an orbit away and that that's the process it's like so circular and maybe that ring gets smaller and smaller as i get older question mark but I am in a place where I'm very close to my sense of self, but I imagine uh, then I think I will be moving away to, or I'm just, maybe that's me anticipating (laughs) trying to prepare myself, but it has felt like that in the past.
0: I think maybe uh, we do one of these like every five years and uh, it, it see see where you are.
1: <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that a durational interview performance yeah. art piece.
0: Right? Yeah, and uh, see where in the cycle we capture you every five years. I love that. Thank Haruna for talking to me. It really was one of the best conversations I've had. They are the best. Karuna has nothing to actually plug at the moment, so go over to their website, read up on their work, and sign up for their mailing list. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme, dot <laughs> the theme song for the subtext is Hi by International Pen Pal. Thank you to Rob Weiner Kent in American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This episode was uh, edited by associate producer K.J. Jarbo. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is the audio version of Julia Letterer's With Love and a Major Organ. Julia is a fantastic playwright and the first Canadian I've plugged here in this space. Maybe she'll be the first Canadian playwright I interview for the subtext. Hmm...